You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. All right, so uh, last week, some of you were so godly that you came to a theology class when there was a Super Bowl going on. So I would just say, no, just all of you are loved and adored, right? But we're going to continue to go on uh, through this. We talked about the nature of God last week. And what we did was we talked about uh, about half of the attributes of God, about who the characteristics of who God is. And tonight we're going to continue that, but go specifically into what we call the work of God. Uh, that God's providential work among creation ensures that his benevolent identity guides his sovereign activity. So what I mean by that is... Uh, we have a b- benevolence committee here at our church, which means when there's someone who has a need, it's like, okay, how do we come alongside it and ha- meet those needs, right? Well, God has this benevolent identity. He is someone who's giving, generous, loving in, in so many incredible ways. And so, but what we're supposed to do, what we're called to do is, is to consider, so how does that identity, who he is, it guides his sovereign activity, the decisions that he makes as the one and true sovereign one over all creation. To know the heart of God is to trust the hand of God. If we know who God is, we can trust what he will do, and what he will do will be the right thing, right? So to know his heart uh, is to trust his hand. Has there ever been a time in your life where you thought, I don't know if I um, would have done what he just did, right? I, I, don't, I, I think I would have gone right, but he seemed to have thought it was better to go left, and, and I, I don't know if I would agree it. But at some point, you have to say, but I trust him. He's never given me a reason to doubt him. It's a scary thing as a child or for a child when you look at them and say, hey, I need you to do this. Will you trust me? And they go, I don't know. Have I ever let you down before? Uh, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, like, what do you mean? Like, I want my kids to say, no, you've never let me down. But in reality, have I let them down? Absolutely I have. Has God ever let us down? In reality, we might have felt let down, but even in the midst of our problems and issues in our life, he was holding us up. He was doing something good and glorious in the midst of it. So I want us to talk for a brief moment about the consistency of God, to think through how consistent he actually is. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, the rock, by the way, that, that gives a, if you're named the rock, that means consistent, right? Okay, so he's the rock. His work is what? Perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he so when he's saying the rock that is something that's stable that all of his ways are perfect so now you see if he is consistent therefore we would assume that his works are consistent right if he's stable then that means that whatever he does whatever he calls us to do can be trusted in the midst of it since god is perfect there has never been a need for him to change throughout eternity if we think through if god truly is perfect then that means that any type of alteration from that would mean that somehow, if he improves, that means that he was not God. If he decreases, that proves he is not God. He must be consistent throughout all the things that he does. Through, through Scripture, we read who God is and what he has done, and therefore we can anticipate who he will continue to be and what he will continue to do. Okay. With, with this, this is an opportunity to say, if we know who God is, what he's done, then that gives us a future hope in who God will continue to be and the kind of things he will continue to do. This week, some of our staff got to go uh, to a conference on Thursday, 
And uh, at the conference was a guy by the name of Nick Ripkin, who is a missionary who's done a lot of incredible things throughout the years. Uh, he's written a book called The Insanity of God. And one of the things that impacted me so greatly, he talks about how the culture and the world is, is turned against, against the church and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, the reality is that the world doesn't have a problem when you speak of the Bible as long as you continue to speak of it in the past tense. They don't have a problem with you saying who God was. They've got a problem with you saying who God is. They don't have a problem with you saying what God used to restrict or condone or say is okay. They have a problem when it's in the past tense, right? Well, yeah, okay, God used to say that for those people back then, but now. Okay, God might have used to do those things, but now we want to take out the miraculous because if we inject the miraculous into our life, what that means is there is still a God in heaven. If there is a God in heaven and we are people of earth, we must surrender ourselves to him, submit ourselves to him, and we just don't want to go along with that. If God is not turning out to be who you thought he should be, that should be a welcome discovery in your life, folks. In reality, we think about the consistency of God. Have you ever read something in Scripture and thought, that's not what I was expecting? Has he ever done something in your life going, I don't know if I'd have done it that way? But in reality, the more that I see God and what he has done, there is a, uh, there is a shocking realization and is a very honest, um, helpful discovery. God's not who I thought he was going to be. And that's a good thing. You know why? Because once again, Voltaire said it, God has created man in his image, and ever since today, man has been trying to repay the favor. We try to, try to make God in our image, make him like the things that we like, dislike the things that we dislike. We want him to vote, act, think, talk like us, instead of us changing and surrendering ourselves to him. So, so with this, um, there, there's a song that was written a few years ago, ago called Praise the Lord, but he, uh, the, the writer basically said it this way, uh, I used to fit you in a steeple, I used to cram you in a book, I, I used to treat you as a hammer trying to nail down everyone, and he said, uh, I'm finding out that you're not who I thought you would be. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that you're actually, the God of the Bible, is actually something more reliable consistent than who I think you should be. So in a definitive study of God, we find the perfect one who needs no what? No needs, no alterations. God needs not to be altered. There's nothing inconsistent in his nature, so therefore he doesn't need to improve. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody in this room still need alterations in your life? Okay. Still got a few things to work on? I do. There's nothing in which God's going, you know, if I just take a couple more courses, I think I can get this figured out, you know? There's nothing like that in God. He is completely consistent, reliable. There is no need for alterations. So when we think about the activity of God, what he does. Colossians 1, 16 says it this way. For by him all things were created. Okay? So who created all things? God did. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and what? For him. So, um, despite what someone has told you before, all of this stuff in this universe is not for you. It's for God. And, and here's the reason why. Um, does God make a sunset to cause our mind to go towards him? Absolutely. Does he make certain, uh, does he make certain uh, tastes to be able to just satisfy our taste buds and make us go, oh, that's amazing? Absolutely he does. But if it doesn't cause us to look upward and look inward, we've got a problem, right? 
So at this, we have to realize that all things were not only made by God, but they were made for God. And, and in that, the things that we engage and exist and, and enjoy in life, it causes us to then look towards him that no matter what was made, all things were created by him, all things were created for him. Now, God's identity determines his activity, right? So as we looked last week at some of these attributes, who he is determines what he does. It, we can understand what he will do based upon who he is. So um, that's why uh, I went back and uh, my, my favorite kind of author that I love to go back uh, throughout the years is a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer who wrote that line in the book that says, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you think God is an angry God, a thunderbolt throwing God that every time you mess up, he's going to throw something in your way, that will change the way you live your life. If you think God is like that grandpa you had that never got you in trouble, always had candy in his pocket, guess what? That will change the way that you live your life. If you think that God is somehow a pollster, assuming and taking a vote on what the culture thinks that he needs to do or accept or approve of, then guess what? That changes the way that you live your life. So we've got to understand God's identity determines his activity. Who he is is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, beginning and the end. That helps us understand who he is. And, and here's the reality, okay? So we, we started looking at attributes last week. We looked at stuff like he's uh, omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's in all places at all time, right? Now, let me, let me tell you something that is, is um, going to seem like, can this be a bad thing? But let me explain that there's a total nature of who God is. There's a certain set of attributes. And the danger is either this. Uh, the, the, what you want to do is to accept all of that what Scripture says about who God is and what he does. But the moment that you begin to embrace certain attributes and reject other ones, guess what? You've got a problem. You've got a major problem. Because what's taking place there is that a focus on one attribute to the exclusion of another will create in us a heretical, unbalanced view of God. The moment that you say, I believe that God is love, but you do not believe he is a God of justice, you've got a problem. Or, if you say, I believe that he's a God of justice, but not a God of love, you've got a problem. We want you to take certain parts of who God is. We want to cut, copy, paste, and put them in different places. Uh, if you've ever been, anybody ever here uh, been to a Brazilian steakhouse? Raise your hand. Okay? And, you've, and you made it. Awesome. So, if you've, if you've been there, you know what happens, right? There's these folks that have come by, and they've got these slabs of meat, basically. And you've got, they give you a card, at least the ones I've been in, right? There's a, there's a, a red side and a green side, right? So they'll come by and they're like, hey, there's kind of chicken. And you go, green light, like bring it on, okay? They go, oh, we got some steak here. You want a slab of that? Bring it on, right? And they're like, what's that? That's crocodile. You're like, mm, red. Okay, maybe. Uh, some of you are adventurous like me. You're just like green all the time, baby. You just keep it coming, right? Until you are hurting so bad you cannot get up anymore. And that's what I call a, a good night. Um, so, so with this... What comes to place of theology, when we start going through Scripture, some of us see certain parts of God going loving, yes, green light. Righteousness, yes, green light. Sovereignty, ooh, wait a minute. Um, I like this portion, but I just don't like that portion, right? The problem here is that you are telling God what pages from his word you will accept and which ones you are theoretically ripping out. And, and we all have to unpack this, that if God is perfect, 
No passage of Scripture will ever put him in a bad light. So even the chapters that you might avoid, even the books that you skip around, right, okay? You're not going to find God in a bad light. We've got to understand who he is thoroughly and not just take one unbalanced view of it. No matter how inconsistent we might be, God continues his plan from the beginning and will see it through eternity. We're inconsistent, but not God. He is consistent. His nature has not changed uh, throughout all things. Give you an example of how this fleshes out. If we talk about the work of God, a lot of times people will say, you know what, I, I like certain portions of Scripture. I like certain things that are going on. And what you might say is, you probably word it this way. You know, God in the Old Testament was kind of rough around the edges a little bit, right? I really like when Jesus came along because he was really nice and he's kind to everybody. And you know what? Like that, That's how we kind of typically will see it. That, you know, in the Old Testament, God blew stuff up and killed people and whatnot. And Jesus was just, man, he was, he was really nice. He was soft. What you fail to see is God's character did not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He did not get softer in old age, if you will, Okay. He doesn't change as a result of this. So I want you to consider it this way. And it's very important for all of us to consider. In the Old Testament, is there a father, omnipotent, powerful God? Absolutely there is. But do you also notice that in the Old Testament, that at one time, God sent a prophet named Hosea to buy back his prostitute of a wife because it revealed his great enduring love for his people? Does that seem soft or harsh to you, folks? Because that seems like the most amazing thing I've ever witnessed in my life, right? And when I read the book of Hosea, what typically happens is we read it that and go, man, I don't think I could ever do what Hosea did. You missed the point of it. You are not the one being asked to love the prostitute. You are the prostitute being loved. It's different. So in the Old Testament, God was not just like, well, he's hard then. Oh, he was, no, he was soft and loving and, and continued to love over and over and over again. But you also have to understand that in the New Testament, the Jesus who loves and gives him life is also the Jesus who turns over the tables in the temple and runs people out with a whip, folks. This is the same God. It's not changing at all. So as I want us to do, we, we started with some attributes last week. I want us to look at a few other attributes of who he is, what he's done, what do we know about his personality. Revelation twenty two thirteen says... I am the Alpha and the what? Omega. Omega. All right, so stop for a second here. The Alpha and the Omega. So these two things here, you go, okay, I know I've heard that before. This, uh, this verse was written in a language called, anybody know? Greek. Greek. The Alpha was the first character of the Greek alphabet. The Omega was the last character of, so it, it's A to Z, what he's saying here, basically. He's basically saying, I'm A to Z. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the what? First and last, the beginning and the end. What is that saying? There's been no change. He has not changed. He's not adapted. He is who he is. So let's look at these last lists of attributes because they're going to help us understand the work of who God is. First one is sovereignty. Real easy one, okay? Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God means that he has the sole authority to have complete control over the universe, okay? Sole authority, that there is no one else who has that opportunity, that power, that when you say someone is sovereign over a certain land, that means they have authority. God has all, all power. Job 42.2 says it this way. Job responds, I know that you can do what? 
all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Have you ever had something you want to happen and somebody thwarted that plan? There's never been a time where God thought, oh man, I messed that up. If I tried a little bit harder, it'd happen. God is completely, completely sovereign. He is completely in control. Now, let's be real for a second. What is the hang-up with God's sovereignty? Okay, it rhymes with it. We call it God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. You ever heard this? If God is sovereign over all things, then are we responsible? Should we do anything? Or is it, well, God's in charge of everything and, and we have no free will whatsoever? Here's the implication of God's sovereignty. We never have to fear that any situation is out of control because God is ultimately sovereign. So what we mean this is that when we say words like this, the world is spinning out of control. No, it's not. He's still got the whole world in his hands. Okay? He's not out of control. So some of you go, well, what's he doing? Okay? What is he doing? He is sovereignly allowing things to work out the way that he wants them to work out. He is. Now, the issue comes down, and, and all of us are going to have pushback on, on some of this, right? Um, let me give you a, a section because some people say, well, are we free to make choices? Well, well, tonight I can be free. Do I want to put hot sauce on my food or not, right? God gives me the freedom, I would believe, to make that decision. Somebody like, I know what decision I would make, right? But God has not given me the freedom to decide if I want to have wings or not, Right? There are limitations to what I can choose to do. There are certain things outside of my nature I cannot control. So, so I have free will to make decisions 100%. But it comes down to this complexity. I want you to think about one of the biggest issues. And like, all right, uh, out of the 12 disciples, who was the one disciple who betrayed Jesus? His name was? Judas, Judas right? Okay. Here's something that will hurt your head a little bit, just, because, just in case you want a good theological headache tonight. At one point, Jesus says... Judas was appointed to do this, and yet he was cursed because of it. What do you mean? <laughs> is Judas responsible, or is God sovereign? All right, if you go too far in either direction, you got heresy on your hands. Let me explain why. Do we want to say that God encourages and enforces you and I to sin? The answer would be what? No, no we don't want that. Because that would mean that God is the author of sin. Can't go there. But do we want to think that somehow Judas was doing something behind Jesus' back and he couldn't stop him? No. That's chaotic, right? So somehow in this complexity, we believe that God is sovereign over all things, and yet there is free will for us to make certain decisions. But, but in the whole end of things, like this thing is moving to God's conclusion. You, you can change as much as you want. There is an analogy that I read one time that talked about someone who is uh, steering a great cruise ship. Yes, you have freedom to go up and down stairs, and you can go to, to uh, this place or that restaurant. You can decide to go in your cabin, or you can go out and hit the shuffleboard court. But guess what? The captain of that boat's taking it into the harbor, and you can't stop that thing. There's nothing that you can do. And in our lives, yes, we are free to do certain things, but God is working out this world into his purposed end and conclusion, and there's nobody who can thwart that plan. And you know why that's good? Because God's plan is that he's going to win in the end, and if we're with him, we win as well. That's a good thing. We're not going to worry about the outcome. So God is sovereign. Let's talk about another one. Let's talk about faithfulness. The faithfulness of God means that whatever God says is entirely true, and it will truly come to pass. What God says is reliable. 
If you have ever been faithless or unfaithful, if you have ever been hurt by someone who is faithless or unfaithful, you know the pain of this. You never have to worry with God, will he come through? He always comes through. He's always consistent. He's always reliable. 2 Timothy 2.13 says it this way. He, if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. faithful. For he cannot deny himself who God is. He is faithful. It's his identity. That's what he does. The implication is due to God's unwavering faithfulness, we can completely trust him no matter what comes our way. God is faithful. So what he says will come to pass. Folks, has he given us some good promises in his word? Yes. And it will come to pass. When you read the New Testament, knowing what is prophesied about the Old Testament, that it came to pass so clearly, so specifically, it should give you great hope that those things that were promised in the New Testament, they will come to pass. We will see it come to be. That God is faithful in the end. And if everyone else in your life has let you down, he's still here. He's still consistent. It's an identity. It cannot change. God is also holy. The holiness of God means that he is entirely distinct from everything else in creation. Holiness of God, uh, typically when you think of someone who's a holy roller, okay, right? We go, that's a goody two-shoe. They're different than everybody else. Holy means set apart, other than. So we sing holy, holy, holy. We are saying set apart, set apart, set apart. Other than, other than, other than. Completely distinct, completely distinct, completely distinct. There is no one like him. He is completely different and distinct from all things in creation. First Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. If I... Think through this. The, the only time in Scripture there's ever a three-fold designation given to God. It does not say that God is loving, loving, loving. God is justice, justice, justice. It says God is holy, holy, holy. Remember the scene? Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, national tragedy has taken place. Uh, to get it into our perspective, do you remember where you were on September 11th? When you got the news? Some of you remember when JFK was assassinated? Remember the news? You knew where we were? Okay. This is when, where he was when he heard that King Uzziah died. And he sees this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And it says just the train of his robe filled the temple. Not his robe, just the end part. Whew, overwhelming the temple. So overwhelming. He looks up, there's some angelic beings that are, they got six wings, by the way. I don't even have two, so that's impressive the way I look at it, okay? He got six wings. Two, they're flying. Two, they're covering their feet. Two, covering their face. Why are they covering their face? They got six wings. You think you're like, uh uh-uh. Here comes the holiness of our God. What do they say? All, all, holy, 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 holy. Other than, other than, other than. And Isaiah rightfully says, he doesn't go, I'm glad I'm here. Wow, this is a great place. God's here. I'm here. Now it's complete. He goes, I'm in trouble. His words are, I'm undone because... I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. I'm in trouble. When you, when you behold the holiness of God, you don't walk out feeling better about yourself. Whenever anybody comes in face with the holiness of God, they're covering their eyes. They're cowering in fear. They realize they don't deserve to be there. That's what happens. And I, Isaiah goes, I'm a dead man. Because I'm beholding the Lord, and I know how sinful I am, and I know how much the sinful people. So God sends someone to go take a tongue, gets a, a place of coal from the altar, and he touches his lip at the place where his sin is. 
He's cleansed. He's forgiven. He's free. And then the next thing that happens is beautiful. God goes, so who's going to go for us? And Isaiah goes, here I am. Send me. I want to pull Isaiah to the side going, what are you doing? You don't even know where he's asking you to go. You don't know how hard the trip is. You don't know what it's going to cost. You don't know where you're going to be staying. You don't know what the amenities are going to be like. You don't know who's on your team. You don't know if you're going to be in an air conditioner or not. Hold on. Just wait. And Isaiah would say, but I've been forgiven. I, I've been cleansed. Who will go for him? I'll go for him. Where's he going? I don't care. I, I'm here. Why? Because when you experience the holiness of God, when you see how other than he is, it changes everything. The implication is God's holiness should rescue us from a mediocre devotion. It causes us to lift up our eyes and go, he is so other than, he's just not a God to be trifled with. He's not a savior to put on the side or associate our lives with. He is holy, holy, holy. There is none like him. And we should completely surrender our lives to anything that he would call us to do. He is holy, holy, holy. Let's look at righteousness. The righteousness of God means that he always does what is right. According to whose standard? This is important, folks, that when you think about righteousness, he does what is right, but it's according to his standard. You know the reason why a lot of people have a problem with God's move right now is because it's not right according to their standard. We have an idea of what we think God should do, and when God does it differently, we've got a problem. That's not the way that I would do things, and God would say, and that's why you're not God. He's got the standard. That's, that's who we surrender ourselves to. Psalm 11.7 says it this way. For the Lord is righteous. He loves what? Righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I think this is important. He goes, he is righteous, so therefore, guess what he loves to see? When we do righteous things. He is right, so therefore, when we do right, he's like, come on. That's what I'm talking about. Like that, that's good. And to do right is not miserable for us, folks. We've done a lot of wrong in our life and suffered a lot of consequences for them. Maybe some of us need to turn these things around and say, I might try it his way now, right? Maybe I, I can try it his way. The implication for us, I never have to fear if God will handle a situation rightly or not. If he is righteous, completely righteous, he always does things rightly, I don't have to fear right now if he's making the wrong call or the right call. I just trust his hand. I know he does things right. He always does things right, and I never have to fear any type of way. But when things are not done rightly, this is the other side of God being loving, is that he is a just God. The justice of God means that he has unique and incontestable rights to determine the rewards and consequences for every single person. God is just. Have you, um, I don't know if anybody in here has ever been in a situation like this where someone has done something to your family member and you're sitting in the courtroom and you were crying out, Judge, I want justice. Right? I know you're like, no, I want to be loving. No, you want justice. There's someone who's done something over and over and they hurt your family. You're going, I want justice. I want this person to get what they deserve. And in reality, the problem is this. We want justice for everybody else, mercy for ourselves. Right? I want you to get what you deserve, but it's not me. Okay? Justice is God has unique, incontestable rights. He will make the right call. Everybody will get exactly what they need to get. Psalm 89, 14 says it this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So if you look at this, these are two parts of who he is. He does things rightly, and if they're not done rightly, he will address it. Gotta, guys, if you, you don't realize this, 
There is coming a time where God will make everything right. Everything will be taken care of. Every account will be settled. The implication is that God will resolve every situation with justice by the time of eternity. It will be done right. Before all is said and done, it will be done right. God is a God of justice, which means this. Every single person will either pay for their sin or Jesus Christ has already paid it for them. There will be no account left unsettled. But praise God for the gospel that we don't have to face the punishment for our own sins. Next attribute, mercy. You're like, give me a good one. Okay, here's a good one, okay? The mercy of God means that he does not give his children what they deserve. Anybody excited about that, right? Thankful that he does not give us what we deserve. Uh, I had a friend when we were on our first international mission trip, and it was very difficult, and people wanted to complain because food wasn't good, the weather was bad, our living conditions were awful. We had what we call the five-finger rule. Yeah, yeah, just the five-finger rule when you want to complain. Are you ready for it? I'm tired, I'm hot, I'm overwhelmed. We would go, five-finger rule, I should be in hell. Perspective for anybody? But I'm hot. Yeah, I know. But you should be in hell, okay? I'm tired. I don't like the food. Yeah, and you know what? The food's much worse than hell. And that's where you deserve to be. You should be in hell. I should be in hell. If we don't get hell, folks, it's by the mercy of God. That's what we deserve. Wages of sin is death. We have asked God to stay away from us, and hell is him giving us what we have asked for. If we get anything less than that, it is nothing but the mercy of God. Limitations 3, 22 and 23 says it this way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know why I think God makes us sleep for a third of our life? This is, y'all, this is deep, okay? Because I think some of our consciousness needs to reset every day because of the amount of guilt we carry around. If it just never stopped, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, I'd quit. Sometimes if I just go, if I could just sleep two hours tonight, right? If I get four in, I'm doing awesome. If I get seven, y'all better watch out, right? But what happens when you see that sunrise and you go, new day, new mercies, new chance, start over. It doesn't have to hang over you. Are there consequences? Sure. But it, it, as that sun goes up, it's like, it's great is your faithfulness. They are new every single morning. The mercies of God reminds us. The implication is in Christ, God is unwilling to give you what you deserve. Praise God. In Christ, God is unwilling to give you what you deserve. I know what I deserve. And it is not anything uh, of what I want to receive from him. But Christ has received my condemnation, my punishment, so that therefore I can receive God's mercy. Let's talk about goodness for a moment. The goodness of God means that he alone is the filter by which goodness is gauged. And if you're not aware of this, God is a good God and he gives good stuff. God is a good God and he gives some good stuff, y'all. And typically, we think that God is the one who's taken all the fun out of life. And I would just propose to you that maybe actually God is the only one who's given any fun in life. You've told yourself that God is against fun. And what you don't understand is God is actually for your joy. And the desires that you have can be enjoyed even more fully if you'll just do it the way he said. Isn't that crazy? Um, God is the giver of Every good thing given, every perfect gift. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and what? 
do good. You, you are good, you do good. Teach me your statutes that, that we can look and see all the wonderful things that he does. Our, the implication, our perception of God would change the moment we acknowledge him as the source for all the good in our lives. If we could just stop for a second and realize he's the source of it. What James 1.17 says, every good thing given, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation, there is no shifting shadow. Just the other week, um, I, I, I had this moment where I was just honestly, uh, one, of, one of my favorite worship songs on right now is, is The Goodness of God. Uh, I, I love that song. Uh, it just, all my life you've been faithful, all my life you've been so, so good, right? Um, when, when I sing that, I'm just reminded, and the other day I was driving up Highway 25, going up to the Tigerville area, past Traveler's Rest, getting ready to go over to North Greenville University. And one of the things is I can remember is an 18-year-old young man uh, driving my Bronco 2, 1988 Bronco 2, with all my stuff in the back of it, getting ready to load up into Tigerville and start my college career. I remember going over the cusp of this place at 25 and seeing this mountainscape. And it's just beautiful. You hit this mountain and you see it out there. And I can remember as an 18-year-old kid, I said, Lord, don't ever let me get used to this. Just don't... I, I'm going to live here for four years. Like, don't, don't, don't let me just miss the opportunity for this. Just kind of take my breath for a moment, right? You know what happens in four years? You kind of get used to the mountains, right? And then every so often I drive by there. And just the other day, uh, I was going to go meet with somebody and just seeing God's answering a prayer and doing some amazing things. And I'm just, I'm singing that song and I hit that part and I see it and I'm just reminded. I just go, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good to me. So much good stuff that he does. Uh, God is not a fuddy daddy keeping fun away. He is the one that is the source of all goodness in our lives. Another um, attribute of God, two left to go. Number one, uh, this one is love. The love of God means that he has an unconditional and undeserving affection for us. Unconditional means it's not based on what you do. Undeserving means the amount of love that he has for you. Guess what? You really didn't warrant I didn't warrant. The fact of God's love for us is what's so amazing is that how we see and think through all the brilliance of who God is. What Romans 5, 8 tells us is that by God shows his love for us in that what? Y'all, if, 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 you, if you can't get this right here. While we were yet sinners. Not after we were sinners. Not once we got our act together. Not when we cleaned up. Not when we dealt with our... While we were sinners. He reaches down and he loves us in the midst of that. Zacchaeus, y'all, right? If you grew up in church, you knew about Zacchaeus, right? Because we like to pick on wee little men. Okay, like here, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Lord... Okay, I forgot it now. Okay, anyway, you get the point. Zacchaeus is a dirty, rotten uh, scoundrel who steals money from people, right? He wanted to see Jesus. So he was too short. He wasn't accepted by the crowd because he stole money from them. So what happened was, he said, I'm going to be so smart, I'm going to climb up in a tree so I can see Jesus because I'm challenged in my height. And so I'm going to climb up here, and he gets up to this space, and he climbs up there, and we all go, look at Zacchaeus. Way to go, Zacchaeus. It's amazing Zacchaeus saw Jesus because he climbed in the tree, and you've never thought about who planted that tree in the first place. Zacchaeus climbed up. Way to go, Zacchaeus. Who planted it in the ground 30 years earlier so that Zacchaeus would have a spot to see him? And the amazing thing about that story is not that Zacchaeus saw Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Crowd, all stuff going around. He goes, Zacchaeus. And he goes, I'm about to fall off the limb. You see me? What are you doing up there? 
I need to come to your house today. What? Why would you come to my house? Don't you know what I've done? Yeah, I know what you've done. I want someone to come to your house. Zacchaeus comes down and says, I'll, I'll repay everything that I, I stole from people fourfold. Jesus goes, I didn't ask you to do that, but huh, that's interesting. It's almost like God's love is the catalyst that we need. It's not, let me do all this stuff, pay back, now do you love me? No, I love you. And now you're going to want to pay people back. Now you're going to want to do the right thing. The implication here for us is that God's love for me is not contingent upon my performance for him. His love for me is not contingent about is not contingent upon my performance for him. You don't need to prove yourself to, for God. In fact, if you try to, you can just go make a mess out of it. What you need to do is stand in awe that God knows everything about you and is absolutely crazy in love with you. That's what you need to be amazed by. Um, last attribute before we kind of wrap this up is grace. The grace of God means is the unmerited, unwarranted, and undeserved favor of God towards unrighteous sinners. Uh, it's unmerited. We didn't deserve it. It's unwarranted. We didn't ask for it. It's undeserved. We're, we're, there's nothing in our tank that is somehow deserving of it. In his favor towards us, be grace upon grace. Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer based on works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be what? Grace. You don't earn it, folks. You cannot earn it. Uh, one of the, the games we used to play, I used to play with my kids, is called Shoots and Ladders. You ever played that game before, right? And I love the... Um, what, what the, the board game is doing is it's teaching you Hinduism if you don't realize it, right? Do good things and you go up in life. Do bad things and fall down in life. That's, that's karma. That's what they call it. Shoots and ladders, just it, what it basically says is, hey, if you help somebody out, you go up. If you do something bad, the reality is this. If, if, if life was truly a shoots and ladders game, we're all in trouble, folks. We're in way trouble. I don't get up because I do well. I get up because God put me there. That's the only reason why. It's, it's the grace of God. Um, the implication is God's grace is even greater than my sin. God's grace is completely greater than even my sin, and there is nothing of which, that in any type of way that I can somehow say that um, I uh, am in somehow of my own works deserving of God. What I would like to do tonight, if I can, is I just want to read something that a few years ago that I wrote down to try to help myself process through all of these different attributes because of to know the nature of God is to understand the work of God, what he's doing. And um, just, just tonight to kind of summarize it, if you will, this is something that I would kind of say is this is kind of God's resume, okay? To remind us of who he is, kind of put our soul at ease as we understand the theology of it is. The God of the Bible may not be who I wanted, but he is who I needed. With each step closer to knowing him, I discover that my previous ideas pale in comparison to his actual identity. Not only do I understand that I was wrong, but I find joy in being saved from my former ignorance. He is far better than I could have even imagined. Nothing is impossible for my God. In the beginning, God was there. There was nothing before him, and there is no one like him. He created this universe and absolutely everything in it. When he said, let there be light, the light had no choice but to obey. He had not yet created a sun or a moon yet. With even no stars above, he simply spoke light into existence and the darkness was overcome. He didn't need the light for he was the light. My God created the heavens and the earth. All that we see, know, and experience he made in seven days. Every year, leading scientists discover a constellation never seen before. And my God in heaven replies, are you just now getting to that one? You think that's impressive? You ain't seen nothing yet. Keep on coming. Every constellation and every creature, every bit of scenery and every change of season, everything from the east to the west was made by his power and for his glory. God steps back at his creation and calls it good, but creation steps back and looks at my God and calls him great. 
You know why? Because nothing is impossible for my God. My God was able to breathe the breath of life into the dust and to make mankind. He created you. He created me. He didn't create us because he was lonely or needy. He created us for his glory. We were made by him. We were made for him. My God was able to change a barren void into a vibrant creation. My God was able to transform a childless home into a burgeoning nation. My God was able to redeem an enslaved people. He rescued his own from the clutches of a mighty pharaoh and sunk the world's most feared army under the waters of the Red Sea. My God took over management of the promised land and gave it to a caravan unable to procure victory by their own strength. My God was able to take ordinary people and make them accomplish extraordinary things. He brought down walls with the sound of trumpets. He scattered armies by the shouts of priests. He brought down significant giants by the hands of insignificant shepherds. He sent kings shaking with the waving of his hand, and yet he still humbles the mightiest in this world by the mere mention of his name. You know why? Because nothing is impossible for my God. My God could take the voices of lone prophets and bring nations to their knees. He led the lone prophet Elijah to defeat hundreds of idolatrous priests in a holy battle of pyromania. He led the exiled prophet Daniel to confront the most powerful king in the world until he was groveling upon his knees. He led the runaway prophet Jonah to be vomited by a giant fish to speak a simple message to a godless nation and watch them wailing on the ground in repentance. You know why? Because nothing is impossible for my God. My God is unwavering. No matter the depth of our sin, he continued to love. No matter our treatment of each other, he continued to pursue. No matter the severity of our crimes, he provided a second chance. We could not make it to him, so he came to us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, dwelt among us, and we could never be the same. Who can speak all things into existence? Who can make saints out of misfits? Who can restore peace from our strife? Whose power can bring the dead back to life? His name is Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the long-awaited Messiah of whom all history was longing for, finally appeared and the world has yet to recover. He came to love the unlovable, reach the unreachable, and forgive the unforgivable. He healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, and befriended the sinners. The mute could speak, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk, and now the blind can truly see. And yes, my Jesus died, but nobody took advantage of him. He wasn't forced upon that cross. He made that cross. He volunteered for that cross. He came eagerly looking for that cross. And while he may have died upon that cross, he was never defeated upon that cross. Joy brought him there and grace would keep him there. Our sins were great, but his grace was greater. The wrath of God meant for us was placed upon him at that cross. It was not because any rebellious man or governing authority or devil of hell put him there because he desired to go there. He took our unrighteousness. He offered his own righteousness. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wrath of God was heading our way, and Jesus stepped into our place. He took the death that I should have died, so that now I can live the life that he has lived. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And yet he was willing to give his up so we could have ours back. But church, lest you forget, let me remind you that the cross was not the end. While his enemies were rejoicing, the authorities celebrating, his followers regrouping, his disciples doubting, and those women crying, my Jesus was busy rising. No cross could defeat him. No government could pacify him. No demonic force could control him. No sin could keep him. No grave could contain him. No death could restrain him. He got up. 
How could it be because nothing is impossible for my God? Sin was defeated. Satan was disarmed. Hell lost its sting. Death misplaced its victory. There was nothing before him. There will be nothing after him. There is nothing like him. He had no predecessor. He will have no successor. He is the author and the finisher. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning, the last, future, and past. There has never been a moment when he was not, and there will never be a moment when he will not be. My God still reigns supreme. No matter who is president or candidate, He is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No Supreme Court governs him. No Senate or House revokes him. No Cabinet advises him. No Secret Service guards him. No lobbyist sways him. He says what he wants and he does what he wants. Why? Because my God is unstoppable. Nations try to restrict him. Rulers try to avoid him. Dictators try to sway him. Governments try to ignore him. But he cannot be contained, maintained, or restrained. He cannot be shut up, backed up, or held up. No power can keep his influence out. No opposition can keep his message quiet. And no authority can hinder his plans from going forth. The more they try to restrict this king, the more they see his kingdom coming. The more they try to threaten his children, the more they see his love spreading. The more they try to keep him out, the more they see his presence invading. My God is sufficient. He doesn't need a handout or a bailout. He is not short on resources or manpower. My God is all wise. Diseases in which doctors have closed the book, my God writes a new chapter. Marriages in which counselors have to refer, my God lifts them from the ashes. Homes which are broken, he restores. Those deep in need, he provides all the more. Broken, weary, depressed, and confused, my God can bring life anew. Do you know why? Because nothing is impossible for my God. promise you I'm almost done. He is mighty, magnificent, and majestic, omniscient and omnipresent, imminent and transcendent, immutable, irrefutable, unstoppable, unforgettable, good, just, right, and holy, powerful, supreme, my one and only. He can do anything. He is my everything. He is the sinless Savior, the righteous Redeemer, the mighty God and the truest friend, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Son of God and the Son of man. Who is this warrior who secured victory? Who is this truth setting us free? Who is this sacrifice able to save us? There is none other, only Jesus. Angels fall on their faces. Demons fall to their knees. And there is still coming a day on which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not through with me and I cannot get over him. My God is able to finish what he started. And when he comes back, he ain't coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. With a mighty shout, in a split second, all that once was wrong will be made right again. And when that trumpet sounds and he splits the skies, he will crush the enemy once and for all and will call out to his children and finally beckon us to come back home rise up church for i have good news for you today no matter what chapter you are reading right now i have read the end of the book and guess what we win we win no more tears no more pain no more death no more sin no more enemy only jesus jesus and more of jesus we win you know why because nothing is impossible for my god that's the mighty god that i serve is that the god that you serve let's pray father you are everything we need and so much more shame on us for shrinking you down to a size in which we think we can manage You are God, we are not. 
We are unworthy. We are unable to even grasp your greatness. Allow us to fall down in the midst of your majesty rather than try to rewrite the playbook on who you are. God, the issue is not you. It's us, God. It's not you're the problem. We're the problem. We have too small version of you, and we have settled in too casual of a pace of following you. We are not dealing with someone that we can manage, God. You are untamable. You are righteous, you are holy, you are sovereign, and there is none in this room that can somehow steer your direction. You are God, and we are not, and we would be in the good place tonight if we would just stop trying to take over a seat in which we cannot fit in. It's your throne that you reign in forever. Help us to understand who you are from the power of your word and to walk out in the power of your spirit. And it's in the strong name of Jesus we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.